I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. All of this happened in a single business day. All of it happened using only publicly available open source intelligence, and all of it happened without the U.S. intelligence community. Technology is upending the way spies operate. Last week, a Chinese surveillance balloon dominated headlines. But the uproar overlooked just how much a host of new technologies has already transformed the intelligence world. Countries are racing to harness commercial satellites and quantum computing, and also thinking of new ways to deploy information and exploit data. My colleague, Kate Brannon, talked with Amy Ziegart, a Stanford professor who studies intelligence, about what the United States must do to keep up. It's so great to have you here, Amy. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, Kate, thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start with the piece you wrote for Foreign Affairs. The very first piece you wrote it was with Mike Morell, the former deputy and acting director of the CIA in 2019. And it was titled Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, which later became the title of your new book, which came out last year. And in that first Foreign Affairs piece, you described the massive technological changes that you saw reshaping the world and at the same time totally disrupting U.S. intelligence gathering and collecting. And to help us sort of understand the problem and where we're at today. What did you see happening then that led you to write that piece? So that piece was really the result of a long time conversation that Michael and I had. He came out to Stanford University for a simulation I ran where he played um, President Trump and I played Xi Jinping and we started talking on the sidelines of that simulation. And then we had this conversation over the next year or so so sitting in the middle of Silicon Valley and being on the Stanford campus, it was hard not to notice the impact of AI. And it was hard not to notice the impact of cyber threats and the concern from the private sector perspective about what the U.S. government was doing, not doing enough, doing too much, both of those things. The Snowden revelations were a big topic of conversation out here. So I think that was sort of the ethos or the, the backdrop in which I was operating. And I'd say one other thing, which is we were both focused on the 2016 efforts by Russia to interfere in the presidential election. And I think one of the most important parts of that foreign affairs piece that we talked a lot about was that there was one part of that Russian effort that the intelligence community missed. And it was a failure. And that failure was the weaponization of social media. Right. The idea that the IC was watching, whether it was election tallies or sort of the old school way you might interfere with an election versus sort of the hacking of the American mind was the new thing that that caught the intelligence community off guard. Yeah. I mean, it was an old Russian playbook using new technological tools. So you know, deception operations are something that the Russians and the Soviets before them have done for decades. They just use new tools to do it. And the fact that the intelligence community was slow to see that transformation was disturbing to me. So some of these new tools, social media, you mentioned AI, cyber, commercial satellite technology, quantum computing, all of these things are coming online and developing rapidly. We have chat GPT in the news now. What are the opportunities that these new technologies present to the intelligence community? 
I'm so glad you asked that question because I naturally go to the dark corner of the room <laughs> and talk about all the threats and how terrible it is. But there are tremendous opportunities that these new technologies are creating. You think about the opportunity with synthetic biology to dramatically improve food production around the world or to harness synthetic biology for new medicine production, um, to deal with the climate, to connect people for good things. It's not all bad news. Intelligence in particular, I think this technological moment creates new opportunities for people outside intelligence agencies to help deliver insight to American leaders, whether they're leaders in companies or leaders in government. So this open source intelligence revolution is here to stay. And by that, I mean, as you know, publicly available information that you can now get on the internet. We're talking about open source intelligence and how it is the thing that the U.S. needs to take advantage of to regain its edge. It's important to understand what open source intelligence is. It's not just me sort of surfing around and Googling things. It's much bigger than that. So could you describe all of the tools and databases and things that are now available that, that are open source that, you, that are either sort of no cost or low cost? Like what is, it, what is the world of open source intelligence? It is a grab bag of capabilities. It really is. I wish I could have it, you know, give you a very succinct, here are the five things that open source folks use, but it is really at the frontier of the frontier. So it includes things like following events on Twitter. It includes mining, anything that's publicly available. It includes using commercial satellite imagery. I'll give you one example. I think it's easier to understand what open source is with an example. This is in my book. So over July 4th weekend in 2020, there was a fire that broke out in Iran. And the flames of that fire were so bright, they were detected by a weather satellite in space. So this is just a weather satellite, right? So this information is available on Twitter. The Iranian government releases a photo of the building that had where the fire occurred and said, pay no attention to this fire. It's an industrial shed under construction. And the fire is small with limited damage. Within hours, two different open source nuclear sleuths, uh, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, geolocated the building and discovered it is not an industrial shed under construction. It's a nuclear centrifuge assembly facility at Natanz, one of Iran's main nuclear sites. They don't have security clearances. And then they use commercial satellite imagery to get a different view of the fire. And they conclude, based on the evidence that they've amassed, and they're non-proliferation experts, that the fire wasn't small, it was large, most likely caused by an explosion, possibly the result of sabotage. Each of them puts their analysis on Twitter. Within hours, it's picked up by the Associated Press. By the afternoon, David Sanger has a story about it in the New York Times. By nightfall, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is asked in a press conference whether Israel has sabotaged Iran's facility where the fire took place. All of this happened in a single business day, all of it happened using only publicly available open source intelligence, and all of it happened without the U.S. intelligence community. As I was preparing for this, I was thinking about my favorite open source intelligence breakthrough, and I thought of the amazing documentary movie Navalny, where the Russian opposition leader and his colleagues basically solve his own attempted murder by the Russian security services using open source intelligence. And they even track down one of the men who participated in, in the poisoning, call him up on the phone, and basically elicit a, a confession from him. It's, it's an amazing moment, but it shows how much is out there if you know where to look. 
and how it's how difficult it is for governments to keep secrets. And I think one of the real takeaways from the open source moment is we used to think of intelligence as finding needles in haystacks. Now the haystacks are providing insight too. And so if you can figure out how to put information together from all these different sources, and it's and a lot of it is out there in very dash cam photos from Ukraine uh, that uh, people love to photograph things out of their cars, video things out of their cars, and they post them online. Things like that, those, those dash cam videos were used by Bellingcat to identify the exact transporter that shot down Malaysian Airlines Flight 17. I mean, there are incredible capabilities that you don't even think of harnessing what people have posted online for completely different reasons. And how much now that these haystacks are so enormous, there's information in them, but they're also, it's hard to keep up with them. How much is the challenge facing the intelligence community, the size of the data that's out there, the amount of data, and how, how do you keep up with it? it's a challenge for all of us. We're all drowning in data. And how do you make sense of the haystacks and while you're still searching for the needles that are really important? And so there, I think one of the big challenges is for the IC to use automated analytics more. So what are machines better at than humans? They're often better at pattern recognition. What does a surface to air missile site look like? How can we identify them? Because bureaucracies tend to build things in the same ways, which is helpful for identifying things like surface to air missile sites. Machine learning tools are better at identifying those kinds of things. And so you think about how much time the human analyst can be freed up to devote to other things that humans are better than machines, like uh, developing hypotheses about how the leadership might use a particular weapon system. So there's a real opportunity to use new technologies, particularly AI, ML, uh, more to aid the human analyst rather than replace the human analyst. So we've talked a lot about the opportunities that open source presents. What are some of the risks that come with it and that the IC should be aware of as they embrace it more? So there are a number of risks with open source. The first is that it's open to anybody, which means you get amateurs and experts and people make a lot of mistakes. And so the risk for the IC is that they become the debunkers or the verifiers of last resort, sort of fact checking all this open source stuff. And that takes them away from their own mission, their own priorities. And this has already happened. This is not a hypothetical problem. It's already happened with a student group that did a, a project with a former Pentagon strategist about what China's underground tunnels were used for. And they came up with this elaborate um, presentation and report that concluded China must have 3,000 nuclear missiles. Uh, that's, a, that's an estimate that is more than 10 times higher than what the declassified estimates were. And so this prompted uh, a front page Washington Post story, a congressional hearing. Uh, it went to the Air Force chief of staff and it was shoddy analysis that was that was debunked within a week by experts, but it burned the most valuable asset in Washington, which is time. So the, so the first risk is that people are going to be wrong and errors are going to go viral and it's going to burn up resources by policymakers and intelligence agencies that can be better spent on their primary missions. The second risk is deliberate deception. Because this world is open to anyone, you can imagine adversaries wanting to inject false information into the open source ecosystem to peddle it and have it go viral. The third risk is the countermeasure risk. So you can imagine if an open source sleuth discovers something about, say, a nuclear program that an adversary didn't know was discoverable, 
they may then take countermeasures that make it difficult for anybody, including intelligence agencies, to track what's going on. And I think there's an example of this that's already happened, or at least there's a suspicious example that may have already happened. You might remember when Kim Jong-un, North Korea, posted pictures examining this nuclear uh, device that was affectionately named the disco ball. There were pictures of him looking at this device. One nonproliferation researcher named David Schmerler geolocated the building by using the skylights and roofing materials and measurements from other parts of the room. And so the next time North Korea released photos of a nuclear device about a year later, a device nicknamed the peanut, the room was completely white. There was nothing that you could use to easily geolocate the building. Now, was that a response to the earlier geolocation? I don't know. But the countermeasure risk is a real one. And then the last risk, I think, in open source is that crises could become much harder to manage. So the, the great things about open source intelligence that people in that world often tout are speed and transparency. The world open source uh, collectors and producers can move faster than governments, and they make everything transparent to everyone. But we know in crises, speed can be really detrimental to resolving a conflict, can make things worse. And transparency backs leaders into corners, making it harder for them to compromise. Right? Secrecy is actually very valuable when it comes to face-saving exits, negotiations, de-escalation, compromises. And so we know from the Cuban Missile Crisis, the keys to averting nuclear war in 1962 were not speed and transparency. They were time to think, right? If Kennedy had made his decision on day one versus day 13 of that crisis, we would have had airstrikes and likely nuclear war. So time to think led to a better option and secrecy to compromise. The key to resolving that crisis was a deal so secret, no one knew about it for two decades. So, so I think crisis management could become much more complicated in an open source world. And to go back to what you're saying about deception, when you pair that with the new technologies coming online with deep fakes and, and things like that, the possibilities to deceive open source investigators go up astronomically as well. Absolutely. And one of the things that I noted in my foreign affairs piece was the deep fakes of my colleague, Mike McFall, former ambassador to Russia. The deep fakes of him that were used to get Ukrainian officials to talk about aspects of the war. And they were so realistic that the real Mike McFall had to tweet out, don't fall for the deep fake of Mike McFall. So this isn't some far off future. This is already happening. Well, let's jump ahead to Ukraine, where there have been so many interesting things going on with intelligence, from the lead up to the war with the intelligence diplomacy that we saw, to the intelligence sharing that's going on between the United States and Ukraine. In your most recent piece for Foreign Affairs, you describe it as a watershed moment for the world of intelligence. So what has Ukraine confirmed for you that you were already seeing unfolding over the past several years, and what is new about it? So the Ukraine war has confirmed what folks that have been paying attention to open source intelligence have been seen for a long time, which is the power of the capability of open source intelligence. So now the world can see how powerful it is. We can read newspaper articles and see satellite imagery of troop movements on the ground in Ukraine. We can follow things on Twitter. And here at Stanford, there's a team of undergraduates led by my colleague, Alison Puccioni, 
and they're using TikTok videos, commercial satellite capabilities, geolocation tools, and more to um, confirm uh, and note and discover human rights atrocities committed by Russian troops on the ground, conduct analysis of this, and their reports are going to the United Nations. These are undergraduates. It's a remarkable capability. So I think the world is seeing that. That's the confirmation part. What's new? I think the big new thing with the war on Ukraine and intelligence is the Biden administration's declassification of intelligence to warn the world that Putin was about to invade. I don't think we've seen that level of declassification, its granularity, its consistency, its persistence ever in the modern era. And I think that was a novel strategy that we can gain national advantage by revealing intelligence, not just by concealing intelligence, which is how it normally works. It also gets at something you write a lot about, which is that the audience for intelligence is is changing. It used to be sort of collect intelligence for the intelligence community, but now you talk about how voters need intelligence. Uh, and this was a case where really the audience was so much bigger than just the U.S. government and, and how powerful that was. It's a great point. And, you know, we see this in small ways with public service announcements about foreign interference in elections. But you're absolutely right, Kate. This was a a very strategic effort to reach multiple audiences with intelligence, not just people who work in secured facilities with security clearances. So it sounds like there's there's clearly widespread acceptance that the world is changing and that this is disrupting how the U.S. government conducts intelligence collection and analysis. But there's a lot of debate about what to do about it and how to address it. And you write in your, your piece for Foreign Affairs, as long as open source intelligence remains embedded in secret agencies that value clandestine information above all, it will languish. So tell us a little bit more about why the culture of the intelligence community remains I don't know if the right word is allergic or not as invested in throwing resources and people at it. So if you've ever been to an intelligence agency, you feel this culture. They are separate from the world. They operate in secret. If you're an uncleared person and you're going through a classified facility, you know, there are red flashing lights sometimes in the hallways to let everybody know to protect their classified information. There is a focus on the clandestine. There has always been a focus on the clandestinely acquired information, and that's important. But the downside of that cultural focus is that there is a deep-seated belief that if something is in secret, it must not be very valuable. So as one former intelligence official put it to me, he said, we think in the IC that a piece of information, if it costs a trillion dollars to obtain, it must be worth a trillion dollars. So, but that's not the world we live in today. And so, you know, for decades, we've had open source units within these classified or secret intelligence agencies, and they've been laboring hard to do open source intelligence, but they don't have a seat at the table in a way that we need to have if we want to really uh, exploit the power of open source intelligence. And I always, and Michael and I wrote about this in our 2019 foreign affairs piece. It's like the Air Force being part of the Army. 
Until the Air Force became a separate service, air power didn't get the attention that it deserved. It had to be separated into a different service out of the Army, which focused on ground forces in order for air power to get the resources, the attention, the heft that it needed. And open source is the same thing. Yeah. And so in your piece, you recommend creating a 19th intelligence agency to house this open source intelligence capability. Tell us about why that's the way to go rather than integrate it into what already exists. We just talked a little bit about the culture, but what would this intelligence agency look like? What would it do and how would it operate with its partners? So I fully recognize in my previous work, I have criticized the intelligence community for not coordinating well enough across the 18 elements of the intelligence community. So how can I possibly recommend a 19th agency when that will make the coordination challenge even greater? And I think the answer is, this is the world of no great options. I think a new open source agency is the best bad option we have to improve the use of open source intelligence. Now, why do I think we need it? Well, number one, we've tried the alternative, having open source intelligence within existing agencies, and that's not getting the job done. Number two, I think open source intelligence as a separate agency isn't just about the information. It's about driving innovation across the community. And it can drive innovation in a couple of key ways. Number one, it could locate outside the DC area which means it could recruit engineering talent where engineers already live in places like Seattle and Austin, Texas and Silicon Valley. Why does that matter? Because we have to be able to recruit more engineers into the intelligence community and we need them to go in and out of government service to be ambassadors to the private sector. We have to rethink that talent piece so that we can get people to go in and out. It's not a lifetime job for engineers in the way that it historically has been for members of the IC. So I think a separate agency can help drive that talent piece. Engineers don't have to wait two years for their security clearance to start working on tough problems in an open source intelligence agency. I think that's a huge benefit. Um, I think the second key benefit is that this kind of an agency can be a test bed for new analytic technologies because the data is unclassified. So you can more rapidly innovate with tools. And if it works, then you can, you can um, scale them and spread them across the community. In terms of how the agency would operate, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't, I don't know the answer to all the authorities that it would need, but clearly we would need guardrails about um, protecting American civil liberties when we're talking about accessing a lot of open source data about Americans. And I do think we would need to have a classified cell within this agency so that information, when it does get aggregated, that might need to be classified, could be passed more easily to agencies across the community. It's really the idea is to flip the script of what we have today. Right now we have small and open source intelligence units surrounded by classified agencies. What we need is an open source agency with a small classified unit within it. And does that parallel the role for human intelligence going forward? It has an essential role to play, but it is smaller because it's become so much more difficult to do. I guess I don't think of it as a smaller role. There may be less human intelligence, but it may be much more valuable because it's so difficult to get. And because human intelligence is getting that intention as well as capability, 
In 2021, the New York Times reported about a secret cable the CIA sent to its stations that a troubling number of its informants that the CIA had recruited had either been captured or killed. And then there was also reporting much earlier about how China in the, I think the years were 2010, 2012, was able to sort of shut down American spying by identifying again, informants that the United States had recruited and and had executed them. And as we think about how difficult these technology changes are making it for the U.S. to conduct intelligence collection and analysis, what are your thoughts about the role of human intelligence and, and why it's becoming so much harder to do? So human intelligence will always be essential. There's nothing like having someone in the room or someone close to a leader to reveal what that leader is thinking or how they behave or what's likely to be persuasive to that person. So that penetrating insight into an adversary through human intelligence will always be essential. But as you note, and as we can tell from public reporting, that is getting so much harder. And I think it's getting harder for two reasons in particular. Number one, all of the facial recognition, biometric identification at borders and in cities is making it much harder to recruit and operate um, spies on the ground. So how do you meet with a source on the streets of Beijing today when there are cameras everywhere, when your cell phones are being tracked? It's so much harder today. So that's the first challenge, is a sort of denied technological environment. And it's not just in Beijing, it's other cities around the world that are utilizing these new technologies for a variety of purposes. But the second reason is the technologies used to communicate with assets also have vulnerabilities. And that's been publicly reported with respect to the Chinese network being blown, that it was the computer system of communicating with possible sources uh, that was penetrated. It was a system designed in the Middle East, which was a much more benign cyber environment. And then it was also utilized in China, much more sophisticated cyber actor. And at least according to press reports, that communication system was penetrated and then also enabled uh, the Chinese to penetrate the communication system with vetted sources. So there was the, we're thinking about recruiting these folks, let's communicate with them. And then there's a, these are our tried and true sources. And it was all blown. So the more we rely on technology, the more we are vulnerable to technological weaknesses that could be penetrated by technical means. And you write about this too, the, the, the future of encryption and how it will become harder and harder to keep things encrypted as, as we go forward. So this is what happened in China, sort of a preview of how much harder it will, it will become as quantum computing advances and things like that. Is that right? My colleague here at Stanford, uh, Dr. Herb Lin, has really um, written a, a fascinating piece about this. And he points out that encryption isn't just challenging the future of how we protect information. It could unlock all historical information about, think about intelligent sources and methods that could then be revealed with quantum computing that could break encryption. I would never want that to happen, but I would love for some of the past CIA successes to be revealed, and then you could write a great book about them. When I write things that criticize the CIA and I hear and, and, and folks inside say, you know, you only write about our failures. And I say, well, then declassify your successes. Exactly. I'll write about them too. Exactly. We'll be back after a short break. In 2021, the last American troops left Afghanistan, ending the longest armed conflict in the nation's history. Out now in paperback from Oxford University Press, 
The American War in Afghanistan by Carter Malkazian, former special assistant for strategy to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and expert on the region, provides the first comprehensive history of the entire 20-year conflict. Drawing from a deep well of local knowledge and a rich array of primary sources, Malkazian moves through the war's multiple phases, including a detailed account of the end of the war, explaining why it had such a disappointing outcome. A wise and all-encompassing portrait of the conflict, get your copy wherever books are sold. Given everything we've discussed, I'm curious through your reporting and your discussions with folks inside the intelligence community, what's the mood about all of this? What's the morale? And is there fear about this new future? I think there's a recognition that they matter, uh, that the Biden administration and the world sees what they can do, but they've got to change and they've got to change much more quickly. And that tech piece is essential to that change. Getting people in the door in these agencies that understand technology, that are STEM educated, utilizing technology more. They have to move faster. And I know there's a widespread recognition of this across the community, but it's hard to get bureaucracies to move fast. Thinking about moving fast, being risk tolerant, is there an advantage that a state, that an authoritarian state like China has in terms of being able to pivot around these quick technological changes versus a democracy where you have to think about privacy and ethical and constitutional obligations? I mean, I think in general, over the past few years, there's been a sort of authoritarian envy that's taken hold in the United States. Look at the airports in China, look at how they can build things so fast. And the bloom is off the rose, I think, on authoritarian envy with the zero COVID policy and how much that's backfired. So I think the general narrative has shifted that, you know, democracies actually have some inherent enduring capabilities that authoritarian regimes will never have. In intelligence in particular, yes, there are some things that authoritarian regimes can do more easily. You know, the internet is free and open for China to collect all sorts of information about Americans, but it is not free and open for the United States to do the same uh, in China. So they're at an advantage, right, on that, on that front. But we have some enduring advantages on our side. Uh, number one, we have allies and partners. China has customers. And I think there's a real recognition, particularly accelerated by the war in Ukraine, that we can do much more on intelligence and data sharing with allies and partners around the world to improve the security of everybody. China doesn't have that advantage. We also have a multinational, multi-ethnic, diverse workforce. And that's a huge advantage too, whether it's about data collection to train uh, algorithms better, or whether it's about harnessing uh, foreign language, foreign culture, people who understand uh, the rest of the world. So that's an enduring advantage too. And then I'd say the third enduring advantage is the freedom to innovate and fail. It's a lot harder to have an innovation ecosystem that works when you're afraid of, of coming to the wrong answer or angering the wrong authority. Jack Ma is, quote, retiring. I don't think Jack Ma wants to retire. We have an enduring innovation advantage in the United States. I'm so curious about your thoughts on TikTok. You brought it up in your piece and note how many people are using it, including an estimated 135 million Americans or 40% of the U.S. population. And you write that in today's world of information warfare, weapons don't look like weapons. 
what are your thoughts about TikTok and how does it fit into this open source intelligence picture and in terms of what the Chinese are getting access to? So if we go back to Russia's election interference playbook, right, 2016, the Russian playbook is let's let's use American tech companies to divide Americans and sow misinformation. China doesn't need to do that. They have their own platform, TikTok. So they don't need to use American companies. They have a direct uh, line of communication to influence what Americans think about a whole host of things. If we look at how TikTok has been used over time, it's increasingly used as a source of news. So it was originally marketed as pure entertainment, but increasingly people are using it as their news source. So there are two risks with TikTok. One uh, is that uh, the Chinese government by law can access data about lots of data about Americans. Uh, And so that's a concern to the US government. But the second is that TikTok could be a propaganda tool of the Chinese Communist Party, and we might not even realize it. So nothing as obvious as um, the China, you know, Xi Jinping is the greatest leader in the world, but you can imagine TikTok videos that are designed to portray Ch- the Chinese Communist Party in a much more favorable light than reality would suggest. So a very um, clever influence operation done with by giving uh, TikTok users content that they think they want. So I think those are the two big concerns. And the question is what to do about it. And I know there's been reporting about um, CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, is in negotiations with ByteDance, the firm that owns TikTok, about how can we mitigate both of those risks. So I think this is an ongoing challenge, but TikTok is a, is a serious national security threat. Yeah, it's kind of lying in waiting, it feels like. It could be, it could, it doesn't appear to be being used in that way, but it's certainly available for that kind of use. It's an attack vector of influence directly into the minds of 40% of Americans, including a lot of young people who love their TikTok and don't want to give it up. I feel like a real old person since I'm not on it, (laughs) but maybe I'm safer. I want to ask you, there are times where it's been very obvious to the public what the big questions are motivating the intelligence community. To go back, the existence of Iraq's WMD program. Uh, Where is Osama bin Laden? Is Putin going to invade Ukraine? What are the big questions? I know that at all times, intelligence officers are working on all kinds of different things, but what are the big questions that the intelligence community is trying to make sense of? So I don't speak on behalf of any intelligence agency or the community. So what I'm going to share with you is just what I'm divining from reading the publicly available threat assessments. Um, Number one, it's great power competition. It's China and Russia, and China in particular. Russia is the hurricane, China is climate change. China is the long-term strategic threat. It is the only country with the military, political, technological, economic power to rival the United States. And the stakes of that competition are high. A world led by China is going to be a very different world with very different values, repression, damping innovation, accelerating conflict, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. And that's something that we want to avoid. So I know there's a lot of focus on great power competition. I'd say something that maybe listeners may not realize, I think, is a growing area of focus uh, is space. Space as the high ground for satellites that make all good things possible, getting money out of your ATM, GPS in your car. We don't think about space-based assets for everyday life, but they're crucial. 
There's also more militarization of space. There's a concern about debris in space. So space really is uh, a growing concern uh, from a perspective of what are other countries doing in space and how can we ensure that there are uh, norms and principles to protect the universe, not just the, the globe. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us and talking through all of this with us. It's been, it's been a joy to talk to you today. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for having me on. It's been really fun. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zacharia. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in. 